Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have Diane Langberg as our guest to talk about power, authority, and abuse in the church. Diane is an internationally recognized psychologist and counselor with 47 years of experience. She speaks regularly on abuse and trauma all over the world. She recently wrote a book entitled Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Diane's book helps us understand how power works, the effects of the abuse of power, and how power can be redeemed and restored to its proper God-given place in relationships and institutions. Well, Diane, I was reading your book the last few days and I was struck in the introduction where you wrote, much of Christendom today seems less interested in seeing as Jesus saw, less inclined to enter in and far more interested in gaining power. And I thought we'd begin by talking about what it was that led you to write this book. What were the issues of power that you were observing uh, that made you want to write this book? I wanted to write the book because I love the church. And because I was seeing it do great damage to itself and in the world over this issue. Um, most people don't really stop to think about their power. And in the church, people think about it only as using it to teach others and all those kinds of things, but not in terms of character. Yeah. And I've spent decades listening to people who've been injured by the church. Yeah. And so on their behalf in some ways and for the sake of the church in the name of christ that it carries i wrote well diane the um concern for the church is obvious in this book and i deeply deeply appreciate that my daughter and i wrote a book a church called tobe and we've been hearing stories for about six weeks well actually for two and a half years but for six weeks Almost every day we hear another story. And it is, it is mind boggling to me, the way power is, a, is used in churches. So I'd like, I would love for you to explain to our audience um, your, your ideas about different kinds of power that, uh, that we all have and that can be used well and can, or redemptively and can be used toxically. So I wonder if you just kind of discussed, you know, you had stuff like embodied power and emotional power. And I thought, I think that's just fantastic breakdown. I, I would like to start my answer to that by saying that power is given to us by God. It's part of bearing his image. I mean, he obviously has it. <laughs> it all originated with him. And he gave it to us when he created us to use on his behalf with his character <laughs> bearing fruit and blessing. That's the purpose of having any kind of power from God's perspective. We have not done that and we have used power in many ways to feed ourselves. And we can do that in all sorts of ways and it doesn't mean that we feel powerful. 
actually sometimes the most damaging people are those who feel powerless and wield power. So I always start with physical because that's the most obvious. You know, if somebody weighs 250 pounds and I weigh 85, you know, if we have a tussle, guess who's going to win? It's, it's not even a question. And so people are familiar with physical power. And most people can think of an experience where they felt a little threatened or something because somebody had a bigger physical size or even just presence in the room. But physical power is often accompanied by other types. And even if you don't have physical, you have other types. So people have verbal power. You know, people who uh, know how to use words, people who have certain levels of education can manipulate words and ideas and use those words to get somebody to do something or not um, run from something or anything because of the words they use to frame it and the things that they call it. Verbal power is often accompanied with emotional power, which can be false in the sense of I'm presenting these things to you because I want to help you or because I'm caring for you when in fact what is being done is very wounding and damaging. So it's spoken, but it also names emotions uh, that people are hungry for. You know, they want to feel protected, they want to feel cared for, they want to feel safe. And so that's often combined. There's economic power. You know, if, if you're poor and make very little money and you work for somebody who's a billionaire, you know, they have economic power and they can destroy your life. Yeah. Or they can tie you to them to do things you don't want to do because they feed your family. I mean, there's many ways that that, that economic power works, um, not just with individuals, but also with systems. Um, there's spiritual power, where people use spiritual language and uh, spiritual education and uh, call things by names that sound godly, uh, but aren't. And so God's name and his word is twisted and used by someone with power in order to hide something, cover up something, or uh, do something that is actually ungodly. Power of position. You know, if you're the teacher or the professor or the pastor or the CEO or the parent, whatever, you have a position of authority. And so you wield great influence. Um, so there, there are just many, many faces to how it's expressed and many, many ways to misuse it and to do so in God's name. Diane, in, in our book, um, we broke down, we, we connected power to fear, the use of intimidation or power through fear uh, and a culture is formed. We broke it into eight parts. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the eight parts and get you to talk about these because I think you can illuminate all of this. Power begins when power and authority are vested in an individual, most often a male pastor. The second, it is, um, it is enhanced when the pastor's approval becomes the gold standard. Um, more often than not, uh, if the pastor approves of a person, a person thinks God approves of them. Third, those approved by the power pastor gain status enhancement 
in the community or in that group. Fourth, power cuts with both sides of the blade. It can be approving to give status enhancement, but it can also be status um, de-enhancement because it works with disapproval. I think that's where the fear edge works. Fifth, the power shaping culture transitioned into a fear-based culture. And I can't tell you the number of people who have told us how afraid they were of the inner group in a church. I know, and they were they had courage. They were, these were talented people. Sixth, judgments and decisions are often rendered behind a veil of secrecy. Seventh, behind the wall of secrecy lurks a perpetual fear of status degradation. Bill Heibel, in his book on Axiom, wrote a chapter called Develop a Mole System, where he had people in his church who reported to him that no one knew he was reporting. And he, he overtly writes about this. I went, oh my goodness. All right, and eight is the last power based and fear-based culture is to be removed from the circle entirely, banishment. And uh, I was talking with a pastor yesterday who told me that he was in a church and he went through all eight of those phases himself. as Not as the pastor, but as one of the pastors around the pastor. And he said, I ended up being banished and degraded. And he said, it's, uh, he says, I don't think I'll ever get over it. So um, I, I would love to hear you talk about this sort of systemic power through fear culture because of your really uh, careful analytics about how power works. Well, I think you just use a very important word, which is systemic, which is not a concept I think many of us know to think about. So what you're describing is not just a particular kind of person, a pastor in this case, but a whole system that is feeding into this and feeding off of this and gaining esteem from it and getting their own bit of the sort of borrowed power of a leader. Um, because if you're on the in-group, you have more power than if you're not and so forth. And so a whole system works together to maintain that leader in, in that position, even though that person is very destructive or just blatantly sinful in some ways or abusing children, whatever. Um, but because the system depends on the leader. And so the system conforms to the leader, which frankly is kind diabolical. You know, we're the body of Christ. He's the head. And a body that doesn't follow its head is sick. I mean, we know yeah. that in the physical realm. And that's what has happened when you describe those things. The body is following a human head. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it destroys the body. And it yeah. carries then, the, that body carries the character of the leader. And even if you don't have to be in the in-group, you are controlled and shaped by that leader as an outside person, because you're labeled according to the same standards, you just didn't make the grade. Um, so it, it affects everybody. And I, I'm sure you have, I've, I've worked with groups of leaders and, and the church doesn't often think of 
for example, male leaders under a power as being victims. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They don't fit the picture, except that they do. You know, just working with a group of elders, I don't know how many times in my career, who are weeping in my room because of what you've just described. And because the only way they know to get out is to call things by their right name and to leave. But what they know is it'll blow up their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Diane, this number of people who've told us this is that, and some of these power through fear pastors will overtly say to people, if you go public with this information, I will destroy your career. I mean, where, how, how can this, how can this happen with pastors who are supposed to be Christ-like and following Jesus? Well, clearly it happens because they're not. <laughs> but I think, um, I think we have to realize, and this is true of any helping profession for that matter, but people are drawn to ministry for wrong reasons. And their words don't demonstrate that, and so people don't see it. But there are many people in leadership in Christendom, some of whom are actually not believers, but they know the language. Let alone, they are not obedient to Christ, and they are wolf-like, not shepherd-like. Yeah, this is really a, a big category for me, is, is thinking of what, what are the primary character traits and characteristics of of genuine pastors and uh, being shepherds is a really big deal and they're often just leaders uh in a sense of an organization who can motivate people from a pulpit on sunday and they think the persona that they place on that platform is who you know that's who they want people to think of of who they really are yes and somebody who has charisma and is articulate and the church is growing and the debt's paid off. And, you know, we we have become people who measure Christians by external factors. Yeah, yeah. Rather than by the fruit of the Spirit or likeness to Christ. In my career, in my reading, my writing, whatever, I keep going back to that statement that Jesus said over and over again, which is, I always do what pleases the Father. Yeah. And the yeah. kind of people you're describing always do what pleases them. There was a part of the book where you were talking about um, the temptation we may have to explain externals, like the pastor's behaving badly because they're really stressed out right now. There's a lot of hard stuff they're dealing with. You know, they're under a lot of pressure. And you talk about what's inside of their cup. And, you know, when when you get bumped, what's inside of your cup is what spills out. So if you have junk inside, that's what's going to come out. But and it's yours. <laughs> yes, and it's yours. You have to own it. Um, and if if you're actively cultivating goodness and staying close to, to your father, that what should be inside that cup is the fruit of the spirit. So when you get bumped, it should be the fruit of the spirit that's spilling out. And I thought, that's so good. That's such a good reminder. Well, and that, that's a very old response. I mean, that's what Adam said. She made me do it. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the way we often, not just in the church, but in the world, respond to a, a rape or something. You know, what were you wearing? Jesus says, what you do shows us who you are, not who the other person is. Yeah. 
Um, so, but we tend to believe the reasons that are given for the bad behavior rather than be concerned about it, which is very sad because somebody who's doing those kinds of things has a spiritual cancer yeah. and, and yeah. we're ignoring it with them. And I've worked with many very fine pastors over the years and I know that's a very stressful job yeah. and, and, you know, easy to get depressed in and all kinds of things. So there's a, I have a lot of compassion for pastors, but it's when those positions get used to feed the self rather than to incarnate Christ. Yeah, yeah. Diane, it, um, you've, you've talked with a lot of people who've been abused sexually, uh, emotionally, spiritually, structurally, systemically. Um, Let's imagine three groups. Uh, the person who's been abused, uh, let's say the elders, I, I call them at times retainers. They are people who are sort of protecting the power of the pastorate, you know? And uh, so I'm using a negative category to describe them. But th these things almost never happen uh, alone. There's usually power protection. And then third, the pastor itself. What, what what can abused people do to, let's say, aid in the redemption of the culture of a church? Well, I would start with a caution about that because somebody who has been a victim of sexual abuse in a system like that is very wounded and extremely vulnerable, which yeah. means they're probably not very safe in many places. Yeah. Yeah. And so most of the victims that I have worked with who have become public or whatever have um, not gone public until they have found some strength for themselves and some healing. And I don't mean you have to be all better as if it never happened or anything crazy like that. But the point is you, you could end up exacerbating what's happened to you if you don't get out of the system and find a place of healing and recovery and right thinking and you know not the, the webs that are in your head of deceptions that you've been told and things like that so the first thing they can do is take care of themselves and you know they can blow a whis whistle or state the truth on their way out the door they can whatever you know those are their choices but the point is that that you want to fight the damage that has been done to you so that you can be effective in whatever you choose to do about that and the abuse that's happened, but also in the rest of your life and strengthened and, and not uh, controlled by the fear that's been dumped in you. And people get very confused because such deception is used with abuse. And so they they blame themselves. They think if they'd been a better parishioner, it never would have happened. They think they were, you know, too sexy. They think all the, all the things that go back to blaming them. And yeah, you don't yeah. want them being public and trying to deal with it with that raw. It's yeah. not that it's gone, but not that brand new raw. You know, we, uh, my daughter and I right now are, well, especially my daughter, is in conversation with a woman 
who was raped multiple times by a well-known pastor. And she is absolutely terrorized about talking about it in public. And this is, this is normal and it's not her fault. And so there, you know, we, we, we dedicated our book to the wounded resistors and we talked about their courage. But um, a woman said to me, just because someone doesn't talk doesn't mean they lack courage. And I thought that was such, such a good statement and it was helpful for us. But um, that whole thing about taking time, there's, there's still women uh, in the Willow situation, there's still elders in the Harvest situation, there's, there's women and young pastors all over the United States. I'm talking right now with a pastor who was spiritually abused by a powerful pastor. And I said, do you, do you want to go public? And he said, I, I just don't have, I don't have the strength right now to deal with it. Because the, Diane, the amazing thing to me is, is how, well, first of all, it really puts a pastor in deep trouble. Their whole ministry is in threat if these stories are true. But their way of defending themselves is not a gospel way of confession of sin, but it is to power up and to intimidate and to gaslight and to suppress and to accuse and all these things. And uh, I'm, I'm just really amazed by that your statement, the first one, is so true. They have to be in a place of recovery, sufficient recovery to be able to handle because uh, the women that we've talked to who oppose Bill Heibel, uh, they just went through hell on the, when they went public. And there were four or five of them who came out right away. So it wasn't like they were alone and having another one there with them has really helped. Uh, what would you say to uh, elders in a church, leaders in a church who recognize what's going on? What can they do to help break down the toxicity of the misuse of power? Well, that's a complicated question because some of them drank the Kool-Aid. Yes. So they're not going to be a united group. Yeah, yeah. And it's usually a portion of other leadership in the church. Could be associate pastors as well or whatever, but it's, it's a, a portion of those people who see more clearly and want to blow a whistle. Um, so... I think whatever you say to elders, first of all, is you have to realize some of them aren't shepherds either. And yeah. some of them have been crushed by the system. Yeah. And yeah. so the idea of speaking up seems ludicrous. So you have to sort of differentiate, I think, when you talk about elders. But the bottom line is elders are shepherds too. Yeah, yeah. And so the cover-up of sin is never godly. Never yeah. God is light, God is truth. So to cover it up is to choose not God. And the simplicity of that statement often hits people in those situations very hard, partly because they've never heard it before. <laughs> and they realize that they're, they are being complicit with evil to say nothing yeah. or to do nothing. Um, there will be some who will never see. You know, it, it, you'll have the 
the sheep and the goats or something there, you'll, you won't. Most elder groups in those situations are not completely united. Yeah. You know, um, I asked I asked my wife, Chris, uh, when we were working on narcissism with pastors, and I've heard some outlandish numbers of the percent of pastors who are narcissists. I saw there was a study that said 70 percent. I went, oh, that's horrible to find out. But uh, I asked Chris and, and I, Diane, I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with this. What percentage of narcissists um, can be confronted and change their behavior? And, and her her response was almost zero. Well, I think the writings and stuff about narcissism would certainly support that. But I, I would also say that anything human is on a continuum. Yeah. And so there are many people who show, say, a narcissistic tendencies, but they don't meet diagnostic criteria. Yeah, yeah. And so you can have somebody who has some of that, but still has space in there that can maybe be helped to look at the self yeah. in the light. So it's, I think it's very important that we not jump to that conclusion with people and write them off as hopeless because the fact of the matter is we don't know and yes. we don't also know how often they've given, been given the opportunity to even look at the truth about themselves yeah. you know so many come from homes or families or i mean like the son of a famous pastor becomes a famous you know yeah. nobody ever called them to look at themselves and the capacity may be there it never got watered. You know, we, uh, so when someone's, you know, like we were talking, my daughter and I were talking to a young woman the other day who was in a situation like this, the pastor, the way she described him, he was quite narcissistic. She said, what, what can I say to him to get him to change? And I said, I think you have to begin with the assumption that he may not, and that you're going to have to tread lightly and find out uh, where someone can speak into his life or not. But um, I agree with you. I think it's a very important thing to recognize. Uh, and I've, I've told so many people in the last year that it's easy to call someone a narcissist. It's pretty hard to know if they actually are. That's a, that's a, that's a diagnostic uh, set of factors that have to be processed by people who know it. I would also just add one thing to that, just from the scriptures, and that is that Jesus called the Pharisees. They didn't come. Yeah. They didn't step into the light with him. Yeah. yeah. They were leaders in the church who were taking care of themselves and yeah. not the sheep. And he went and he went and he went and he spoke until he left and he wept. There weren't very many that seemed to respond very well. And, and I think that that's, I think this is what is important for people who are in abusive situations in churches with narcissistic pastors is, is to realize that um, they shouldn't get obsessed with transforming the culture by saying the pastor, you did this, you shouldn't have, you need to repent and expect it to happen. It's a culture that gets formed around that. It's going to take some time to change. Okay, my final question, Diane, for your wisdom here is, and this is what we're touching on, what, what, can, what can we do in seminaries 
to help. I teach in a seminary. Laura is one of our students. What, what can we do to help form characters that don't become power abusers in churches? Well, part of what I have been struck by over the years, you know, I've had some positions in seminaries or whatever, and I've certainly worked with a lot of pastors. Nobody's ever told me they went to seminary and had things that they were required to study and read and look at that examine the self. They go in and they get knowledge. And, and as we know from the scriptures, knowledge puffs up. <laughs> so part of it is that, that seminaries are training the instrument and they don't want it not to play the melody. <laughs> they want it to know how to play. And so I think that we have to introduce things that require those attending to look at themselves, to look at where they're gonna be weak, where they've already shown it in other parts of their lives, where they're so hungry, they don't care what the outcome is, they're gonna do it anyway, where their strengths are, um, what they're like in relationships. And the other piece that needs to be part of that is what it's like to work with vulnerable people because that's their congregation always. And it, and it doesn't mean the pastor's not vulnerable, but the fact of the matter is vulnerable people are coming to church hungry, which makes them extremely malleable. So if you haven't examined yourself and really looked at how you use other people's vulnerability and hide your own and all those kinds of things, it's a setup for everybody. Yeah. Boy, that is that is a really good piece of advice right there. How to work with vulnerable people. Because a lot of them just have a mission mindset, you know. We're gonna get this and we're gonna build the church and we're gonna get bigger and all. And um, you know, my experience in churches, and if you're at a mega church, you can probably hide from the vulnerable and just not meet them. If you're in a small group, you're probably going to meet them unless you're in a small group of CEOs or something like that. But in if you're in a smaller church, you're going to meet people who are wounded. Our pastor in our small church often says, people come to our church to get healed. And he's a pastor of healing. He really is that way. And... Um, I think that's such a, a great piece of wisdom, and I'm I'm grateful for you saying that. I'm wondering if Laura has any final thoughts or questions. Well, I would love to close out our time um, by reading a little bit of what Diane wrote, that she wrote specifically to pastors. And as somebody who is training to become a pastor, I just found these words to be so helpful and so healing. So I thought I'd read them. What page? She writes, have you been called? Uh, page 150, it says, have you been called to shepherd the lambs of God in some fashion? You may shepherd as a pastor, a teacher, a counselor, or a parent. Do not forget that long before God called you to shepherd, he called you first and foremost to be his lamb. A silly, stupid lamb who does stupid things, follows others into ravines, and allows themselves to get devoured. You are a lamb who must stay very close to the great shepherd. That is the best and wisest way to lead other lambs. They will follow you there. 
Your value as a shepherd depends on your life as a lamb, a weak, foolish lamb, utterly dependent on the shepherd. How will you know anything about shepherding if you do not stay close to the great shepherd? And one of the things that I thought as I was reading this book is how you talk about Jesus. And I thought, this is so helpful. I think just the reminder that we're all broken, we're all vulnerable. Um, and as leaders, we need to remember our dependence on God and that he is our source. And as we lean into him, um, that's will, what will enable us to care well for others. If we try to do it on our own, our brokenness and our misuse of power is just going to keep bubbling up. So I think those were really helpful words um, for me as, as I think we're all going to struggle with this. Um, but sort of thinking through how do you take your temperature and your relationship to power? Yes. Good. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Diane, do you have any final words for our, uh, our listeners? Really only to uh, echo what Laura has said, you know, uh, I, the older I get, the more I realize I'm a lamb, <laughs> a silly, stupid lamb. <laughs> but the, the more I see that, the call for us as Christians is not big churches or famous or money or status or it's to love Jesus and see him clearly and live in a way that helps other people see him clearly and truly. Yeah. And I, I, we've lost our way. We've lost our way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us today, Diane. It's a wonderful book. I know the, uh, Laura will close this off, but it's called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church by Diane Langford. Well, thank you for having me. It was a privilege. Yeah, thank you both for this conversation. It's been really helpful to think about power and how to use it well and how to lean into our great shepherds. So thank you both for your time today. Thank you.